0: L Fanboy episode 62. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR, here with you, and this is the 62nd edition of the Elfam Boy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? It's uh, it's gonna be a pretty stacked show. Got lots of ground to cover, including the latest Batman rumblings, the writing on the wall that Cyborg may have been shut down, cinematically speaking. What's going on with Sony's Spideyverse? and what Solo, a Star Wars story, means to the future of the franchise and for the career of Kathleen Kennedy. So let's just dive right on in, shall we? Earlier this week, Variety writer Justin Kroll released a couple of tweets that have all kinds of buzz around them now because of what they imply and what it it could all mean for the Batman, for Birds of Prey, for the DCU as a whole. So let's let's start off by reading what exactly it was that Mr. Kroll said. He said, and I quote, "'Take this with a grain of salt, as things are constantly changing in the DCEU, "'but I'm hearing the Penguin is possibly the choice to play the main villain in The Batman. "'Sources add even if Reeves decides to go another route, "'the studio could then make him the main villain in Birds of Prey.'" Reeves is still working on the script, so that could always change. But of the multiple Birds of Prey scripts submitted, one does have the Penguin as the main heavy. Either way, it seems WB wants this character cast in the universe sooner rather than later. So, let's talk about Kroll's tweets a little bit, shall we? Because I feel like they're, they're a combination of accurate and speculative And as as much as I respect Mr. Kroll, and as much as I tend to think of Variety as one of those, like, you know, it's just, it's an institution. It's not just like a fanboy click farm, you know, they don't need your clicks. They don't need to create bait for you. Variety is like the New York Times of this field. So as much respect as I have for Kroll and for the establishment he works for, you know, he's not always 100% correct. You know, there was a time that comes to mind where we actually kind of got into it on Twitter. It wasn't like a fight or anything, but, you know, he, Mark Hughes, and I all once had this like three-way exchange over on the Twitter, and it was with regard to Ben Affleck's script and whether or not it was going to survive now that he was no longer the director of the film. This is back when, you know, this is shortly after he left the film and Matt Reeves had been hired to take over. You know, at the time, I had been reporting over at the Splash Report at the time that after speaking with sources, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Affleck's script got tossed, primarily because of the fact that Reeves wanted full control. And Mark Hughes heard and reported more or less the same thing. Then Mr. Kroll tried to sort of fact-check us with his own information. He said that, you know, Affleck, Jeff Johns, and Chris Terrio had recently submitted a script for the Batman, and that the studio was very high on it, so that, you know, basically any talk that that script was getting tossed was premature. And then, two weeks later, it was confirmed that Affleck's script had gotten tossed. Why? Because, as I mentioned... Reeves was given full creative control of the film. Therefore, he wanted to build his movie from the ground up and not use the existing Affleck script. So, I do think it's worth noting that as reliable as Mr. Kroll is, he, just like me, can get certain details wrong. Because, you know, sometimes when you're speaking to a source and they're they're giving you some quick information and they don't want to get in trouble and it's all sort of hush-hush, sometimes all they really kind of give you are like the bare bullet points, the bare sort of breadcrum- breadcrumbs, and it's it, it becomes up to the reporter to now try to connect those breadcrumbs and see what it all means, and sometimes we get it wrong. So I have a feeling that with Kroll's tweets here, it's a combination of fact and what he thinks it could mean. So let, let, let's discuss that. You know, for starters... With regard to whether or not Penguin is being discussed behind the, behind the scenes, I can confirm that he has been. He has been on the studio's studio's radar, so that part I can back up and say is definitely true. But I should add that he's one of many Bat-Villains that, that are being discussed at the moment behind the scenes. You know, Penguin joins names like Poison Ivy and Harvey Dent in terms of Bat-Villains that the studio is currently sort of mulling over. Though, I get the feeling that a lot of this has to do with the, you know, the, the the aforementioned alternate versions of the Birds of Prey script. Because remember, there are multiple versions of this. In one of them, Penguin's the bad guy. It's very likely that maybe Poison Ivy's the bad guy in another one. And maybe Harvey Dent factors into one as well. You know? So... You know, I think a lot of this Bat-villain speculation has more to do with Birds of Prey and almost nothing to do with Matt Reeves the Batman. And as for why I think that, well, as I've already stated, you know, Reeves has full creative control. This is his movie, and he alone is calling the shots on it. After he briefly walked away from negotiations early last year, the studio learned that Reeves is not messing around. He either gets to make this film exactly the way he envisions it, or he doesn't do it at all. You know, people kind of forget about that hazy little period there, where shortly after Affleck departed the project last January, and Reeves popped in in February, he left negotiations. And by the way, this also reminds me of Mr. Kroll because Kroll basically reported it as if it was 100% a lock. The Reeves thing is, at this point, it's just about dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and then, like, three days later, that's when we found out he actually had walked away and abandoned negotiations until about a week and a half, two weeks later, when they brought him back by basically, wait, you know, dangling creative control in front of his face. So, this movie is his baby, and... With, with with regard to all this stuff about the Penguin, you know, listen, th- this all has to be on his terms. So when, when I see these Kroll tweets and the fact that they're about what the studio wants, I can't help but think that, that, ha- that this has to be for a project other than Batman, because... You know, last year the studio backed itself into a corner by giving Reeves, you know, the, the contract that says that Batman is his baby. So therefore, they would not really be able to, like, negotiate with him about, we want Penguin to be in your script, or we want Penguin to be your main villain, because that is totally Reeves's call. Now, it should be noted that, you know, there is a possibility... Where the, where the sort of like the streams could get crossed here, and that is if Reeves already has Penguin in his script. Meanwhile, Christina Hodson may have possibly included, I mean, we, we, we hear that she included Penguin in her script in one of them for Birds of Prey. And if that's the case, then I could see them having to work out the logistics so that the character is presented in such a way that both films can use him without a conflict. You know, it would mean that Reeves and the Birds of Prey team would have to work together on things like the design for the Penguin, the casting of the Penguin, and the particular backstory they're giving this new cinematic Oswald Cobblepot. So that is a possibility. But I don't think for a second that Reeves doesn't already know who his villain is going to be. And I, you know, based on previous conversations with people behind the scenes, would actually be surprised if he went with Penguin, since he seems to want to dig deeper into Batman's rogue ga- rogues gallery. You know, Penguin ain't deep. You know, he, he doesn't go that far in. He's, he's more or less in that top tier of Bat-villains with, like, you know, Joker and Two-Face and Mr. Freeze. And, you know, we, we've already seen the Penguin in a movie. And all along, I've been getting the impression that Reeves wants someone more obscure, someone like a Black Mask or a Hush, who we haven't seen in a live-action Batman adventure yet. You know, so I I could possibly see Oswald Cobblepot being like a bit player in the Batman, maybe as like an arms dealer or someone that has to, you know, that, that the main villain has to interact with or that Bruce has to encounter while doing his investigations along the way but I, do I see him as the main villain? I really don't. So in conclusion, yes, Penguin is being discussed. He's not the only Bat-Villain being discussed. I think it has more to do with the Birds of Prey than Batman. Reeves is fully in charge of Batman, and his movie is still very far from becoming a reality. That's why I'm going to reiterate once more, I'm sorry, Maria, that I don't think we're going to see a Batman movie until either late 2020 or mid-2021. I'm sorry. I know that's a bummer, but it seems to be the case. As for why that seems to be the case, I, I think it comes down to simple math. You know, the, the current thinking, I assume, is that Batman has been devalued these last few years. While his last two solo ventures each cleared a billion, his first two appearances in this new DCU canon have underperformed at the box office. When you think about it, that's kind of a big deal. And if you're like a big corporation looking at these characters as intellectual properties that should be stimulating revenue and and all this sort of stuff, you know, you, just, you have to look at this trend, because with Batman as the, as the sole hero in both The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, the studio saw box office receipts of $1 $1.1 respectively. With Batman v. Superman Dawn of Justice and Justice League, which took their Golden Goose character, Batman, and combined him with other hugely popular comic book icons like Superman, Wonder Woman, and The Flash... The studio got back $873 million and $657 million, respectively. So, they've likely noted this downward trend for the character and are wisely letting audiences grow hungry to see him again. And honestly, you know, that's not a terrible idea. It's not a terrible idea. Batman is an extremely special character, but you've got to stem the bleeding. For better or worse, his impact has been devalued since 2016, and he's currently nowhere near the draw he was in 2012 when Rises came out. So giving audiences a break from him for a couple of years, then coming out with an epic-looking Matt Reeves Batman movie, that could be like just the shot in the arm the character needs. Put some distance between that film and the one-two punch of BVS and Justice League. Now, what about Superman, right? You know, isn't he a priority for the studio right now? You know, I had a whole episode dedicated to that. And yet, why would he be a priority over Batman? After all, Superman hasn't been a money-printing machine for a long, long time. You know, Superman Returns greatly underperformed in 2006. Man of Steel kind of underperformed in 2013 then he was in BVS and Justice League. So why are they accelerating his movie with hopes of a 2020 release while cooling off on Batman? You know, you might be wondering that, and you might see, see this as sort of contradictory information, but honestly, I think it's because the climate is very different now. You know, for his previous two solo efforts the films that sort of stalled at the gates for Superman, or at least underperformed for Superman, and we're talking again about Superman Returns and Man of Steel, the studio went with a more somber take on the character. You know, they allowed Brian Singer, they allowed Christopher Nolan, David Goyer, and Zack Snyder to kind of go a little more serious, a little more somber, the, the, the lonely hero route. And, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily the, the sort of traditional pop culture version of Superman that, that we're used to. And what happened? You know, audiences didn't love either movie. They liked Man of Steel marginally more, but it didn't exactly, you know, the, it, it, it's, it wasn't this smash huge hit. It didn't do the numbers that they'd hoped. The, the, the critical response was very divisive. And even in terms of the way the film is discussed in fan circles, to this day, I still see people bickering about Man of Steel and the collateral damage and the humor and Superman doesn't smile and this and that and the other. You know, so when you think about that, and you think about the fact that, you know, we we even know that Henry Cavill has been pretty vocal about thinking that his Superman needs to be somewhat reinvented in, in the eyes of the public, you know, a reinvention that he feels began with Justice League, you know, he's not wrong. And if you look nowadays, what are folks embracing? You know, they're embracing big, colorful, rollicking action adventures, While Batman was the right character to tap into the post-9-11 world of darkness and paranoia and revenge and dark criminals doing crazy things and a vigilante of the night having to take matters to his own hands, you know, Superman is perfect for the current pop culture landscape. You know, the success of the MCU, I hate to compare it to MCU, I'm not saying that they're going to go and make an MCU style Superman movie but the success of the Marvel franchise has shown the industry that audiences and critics love them some colorful, jubilant comic book adventures built around cool, endearing characters. Not not characters that are brooding and upset and trying to find their way their their place in the world. You know, right now the the, the world seems to be all too happy. To embrace big, happy, jubilant, colorful adventure—you know—type movies. So that's why, in my guesstimation, that's why they're hitting the gas on the Superman sequel and pumping the brakes on a standalone Batman movie. So that's kind of my take on what's going on with this whole thing with Penguin and Batman, and where their priorities with the studio seem to be lying. And I'm once again—I just—I want people to prepare themselves that this wait for Batman is going to take a little while. You know, we're going to get a Birds of Prey movie and probably a Superman movie before we see the Dark Knight on the big screen again. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, that we're all ready for that. Now, you know, there's a little more just sort of, you know, recently released news this morning about Cyborg, another DC property that I've been talking about for years. Now, I haven't discussed it much on this here show lately, but it's worth noting for longtime listeners and followers, you know, I've been saying for a long time that I don't think we're going to see this solo Cyborg movie. Not because I have anything against the character, not because I have anything against Ray Fisher, none of, n- nothing like that. It's just been an overall feeling I've been getting for a while. It was more of a hunch. And over the years, you know, there's been evidence to back up that hunch. You know, there hasn't really been any announcement, any movement on a Cyborg movie in a very long time. Nothing in terms of writers or directors or anything. All we know is that, you know, a, a few years back, when they first announced, you know, the, uh, a very ambitious slate, DC mentioned that Cyborg would come out in 2020. And mind you, that was that was on a slate that still claims we would we, we, that we would have had a Flash movie by now. Remember, there was going to be a Flash movie in February of this year. So obviously, a lot has changed since that announcement. So you know, between between my hunch and the fact that there's been seemingly no movement on a Cyborg movie. Then you think about Justice League and what happened with Justice League. Just recently, they leaked a, a a cut sequence from the film that showed Victor Stone kind of walking in like a hologram recreation and kind of showing the original way that he brought a mother box into the plot, you know, into, into, into the mother box that I believe helped create him and, and all that sort of stuff kind of, you know, whatever storyline they did in Justice League with the mother boxes, honestly, it all gets a little hazy for me, but they recently released, you know, part of his subplot, and we know, we've read for a while, I, you know, a lot got cut from Justice League, and one of the areas that got the biggest overhaul was with regard to Cyborg, and when you realize that for that movie, Not only did they cut a bunch of cyborg stuff, not only did they alter a bunch of cyborg stuff, but like his screen time was really minimal. This does not seem like a character that the studio is trying to set up for a solo franchise. And now, you know, we've got even more, you know, there's even more uh, smoke and a little more fire to this story because over the weekend, Manu Bennett, revealed that he's not going to be popping up as Deathstroke anymore. Why? Because DC's working on a Deathstroke movie and they don't really want to be doing the double dipping thing. You know, we we already know that they're doing that with regard to the Flash that you know, we've got the Grant Gustin Flash, we've got the Ezra Miller Flash, and you know, <clears throat> there there was a thought that maybe DC had sort of softened on that, but apparently not. You know, the as as much as fans love Manu Bennett's Deathstroke, The DC Entertainment brass has said that you're not going to get any more of him, we're very sorry, we're making a Deathstroke movie with Joe Manganiello, and therefore no more Manu Bennett Deathstroke. So how does this connect to Cyborg? Well, you know, if that is their policy, right, if that's how DC Entertainment feels about double-dipping these characters, they're making an awful lot of Cyborg plans for their DC Universe streaming service. You know, there was an exclusive report I gave you guys on the site last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, with regard to the fact that, you know, Cyborg is going to be connective tissue between Titans and Doom Patrol, and they're currently lining him up to to possibly become a series regular on one or both of those series. I mean, I, I shouldn't say one or both. He'll be a series regular on one of them and make appearances on another. So when you think about that, right? You think about the fact that DC Entertainment has put the kibosh on a hugely popular version of Deathstroke because they have cinematic plans for him. Then, you know, inversely or conversely or whatever the fuck the word for that is, um, over on, uh, on the DC, you know, streaming service, if they're making all these plans for Cyborg, then it stands to reason we're not going to see him in the movies anymore. Because if they did have big Cyborg plans and they would not be out there Doing all this stuff with Cyborg on the DC Universe streaming service, but you know, I, I even going beyond that, right? There's the possibility. All right, well, maybe you know, Ray Fisher's not that huge of a star. Maybe they could lure him to the DC streaming network to play the character there instead. But we've already got you know information that that flies in the face of that hopeful fan theory. What and what information is that? My pals over at Omega Underground have gotten their hands-on audition tapes by actors other than Fisher trying out for the role of Victor Stone, aka Cyborg. So there you know, there you have it, folks. They're, they're currently trying to cast an all-new cyborg. And if, when you factor that in with the fact that they seem hesitant to do more double dipping of their characters, I kind of think this is the final nail in the coffin of a cyborg movie. Now, does this mean that, that Ray Fisher will never play the character again? No, I wouldn't say that. You know, there's always a a possibility that for an eventual Justice League sequel or some other, you know, if they ever do get to, like, the Flashpoint storyline, which won't be this next Flash movie, but, you know, presumably down the line they'll get to that storyline. You know, I could see him popping up in some other big Team Up DC crossover event, but, you know, we are not getting that Cyborg movie. And for those of you who've been listening to me since the Lost Fanboys podcast, You know, I guess in a way this all sort of comes full circle, right? Because here I am, I'm actually sitting in the same room of my house where I used to record that podcast, and here I am talking about ultimately what seems to be the death of this cyborg movie. So it it feels oddly uh, cosmic to be reporting on that today. I'm I'm not in the room where I typically record anymore. Right now I'm in this room because my son is home from school, he doesn't have school on Fridays and while I sometimes try to finagle uh, his schedule around so he does have school on Fridays so that I can record without having a little monkey crawling around, uh, I mean, he's four, but he's still my little monkey, so don't judge me. Um, you know, today, he it just worked out that he's home. So I'm over here in another room, and it's the room where I used to do Lost Fanboy. So anyway, that's just needless trivia and probably not at all interesting for any of you. But, um... All right, so those are kind of like the two DC bits that I really wanted to touch on with you today, then a couple other interesting things. You know, it was also just announced, just as I was about to sit down and record this, it was announced that Sony has basically pulled Silver and Black from its slate. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's gone forever, but it no longer is attached to the release date that it once had. And this coincides with some news from earlier this week where the director said that they're still trying to find the script, they're still trying to fine tune it and 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 get a great script in place because the, you know the, they, they don't want to move forward without a right script. So it shows that this that, that this project doesn't necessarily it isn't necessarily set to film anytime soon. And what I'm starting to wonder is, can Marvel or has Marvel already reached out to Sony and just said, listen, let's just write you a crazy check. Let us have Spider-Man and all of his related characters back. You can finish this Venom situation and maybe we'll find a way to fold him into our plans. But listen, we need to own Spider-Man again. You know, and, and listen, I'm not the first person to think of this. You know, Mark Hughes once teased about it in a piece like three or four months ago, I think, that either he had a hunch that this was going to happen or he'd heard is some internal rumblings that Marvel was preparing to make a big behind the scenes play to own Spider-Man outright. And I'm wondering now if maybe, you know, maybe that that deal, maybe those negotiations happened and maybe they're going to go through. I hope so. I mean, otherwise, this situation is very perplexing. Because right now, you know, it's like a co-venture, right? It's a, it, it's a co-production. You know, Marvel can use him for the team-up movies, and they also produce his solo movies. But Sony remains, you know, like, you know, the, the co-producer on all this. And, you know, they're, they're basically splitting the baby. They, they have shared custody of Peter Parker, Spider-Man. And if you think about it, why would Marvel allow that to be a thing anymore? You know, they've got the money. They've got the resources. Heck, in Avengers Infinity War, they went ahead and had Tony Stark turn Spidey into an Avenger. Remember in that very sort of touching scene where he kind of does like the the knighting gesture with his hand as if it was the knighting sword and he says, you are an Avenger now and it's it's this beautiful moment. Why would you like officially establish him as one of your Avengers if you don't have full ownership of him? So part of me wonders if, You know, either a deal was on the verge of happening and now it's official or something's up because honestly, all this, you know, Sony trying to build out the Spideyverse like under Marvel Studios' nose just seems like such a recipe for disaster. You know, they're over here, they have the Venom movie which people are already very mixed on because it may or may not have any connection whatsoever to Peter Parker's Spider-Man and how the hell do you make a Venom movie without acknowledging Spider-Man? But then there's also, you know, who really is dying for a silver and black movie? And then there's also like the Morbius movie that's been spoken of, like who? These movies are all destined to sort of fall on their faces because they're meant to be Spider-Man characters, Spider-Man stories. And they don't have full ownership of Spider-Man anymore. So honestly, you know, this situation feels like a lose-lose for everyone involved. You know, yeah, like if you're Sony, why are you going to make a Spider-Man related type movie set in the Spidey-verse if Marvel Studios has all kinds of limits for how you can use Spider-Man? And if you're Marvel Studios, you don't want Sony going around watering things down, doing things that sort of... Link themselves to your Spider-Man, but don't. Like it, it's just, it doesn't work for anybody. It's a, it's a, it's a crappy arrangement, and you've got to think that Kevin Feige and the people at Marvel Studios and parent company Disney, that you've got to assume that they're trying to figure out a way to fix all this. Because the co-production thing seemed like a great idea at first. It was a great way to finally bring Spider-Man home into the MCU where he belongs, where he could play with all of his Marvel brothers and sisters. So it seemed like that was a good way to sort of get your foot in the door. But now that we're a couple years removed from that deal, and Spider-Man Homecoming was a huge hit... And he was a big part of Avengers Infinity War. And they're working on Spider-Man Homecoming 2. And he's going to be part of the next Avengers movie. Like, now it's time to say, okay, it's no longer about just getting our foot in the door. Now you just need to stop messing around and give us Spider-Man back. So listen, I I honestly don't know if there's any correlation here. You know, the, the, this entire rant came from the fact that as I was about to hit record, I saw that Silver and Black fell off the schedule. You know, who knows what's going to happen here? Maybe in a day or two, Sony will come back and clarify and go, oh no, no, it's not off the schedule entirely. We're just moving the date. Like, I may be totally off base here. But to me, when I think about the fact... That they've released, that they've removed silver and black from the slate that there's no script in place yet that Marvel Studios is is proceeding with making Spider-Man a bigger and bigger deal within the MCU. And then I think about what Mark Hughes reported a few months ago I'm just thinking it's in everyone's best interest for Sony to take a huge, you know, uh, lump sum payment from, from Marvel and for Marvel to cough up the money because Lord knows they have it to just get Marvel fully back, you know, to get Spider-Man back fully under the Marvel Studios umbrella. And, you know... While it's it's it, it could mean bad things for Venom if this deal goes through, I mean, while well, you've got Woody Harrelson going around this week talking about his plans for a sequel, Th- that's where it could actually work in everyone's favor that the Venom movie was sort of produced off on its own little island. Because presumably, that could mean that Venom could end up getting the Deadpool treatment. You know, just like how you know, we're fully expecting all of the X-Men, you know, the, the proper X-Men stuff to get rebooted once Disney owns Fox. But meanwhile, they're probably going to keep Deadpool going. Maybe, you know, th- they're going to keep Venom going too. Maybe these Venom movies will survive the merger. Or, you know, whatever happens with getting the rights to Spider-Man back over to Marvel Studios. And maybe the fact that it's so off on an island means that they could, presumably in a sequel, write in some deeper ties To the MCU and actually make Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock part of the MCU. So in an odd way, you know, it could all be a blessing in disguise that this Venom movie was sort of done off on its own like this because now it gives Marvel the creative ability to say, okay, we're gonna we're we're gonna absorb this project into our continuity or they're not, you know, so that would not be possible if if Venom was made more explicitly connected to Spider-Man or, less, or, or tried its best to say that Spider-Man does not exist in this world, you know? So it's interesting to see how this all plays out. I really think that it's in everyone's best interest for Marvel to just cough up the money because right now it makes no sense. These movies are all destined to flop. As it stands, I'm very curious to see how people take the Venom You know, the the responses to the trailers have have been, uh, shall we say, lukewarm. And I just, you know, ah, this situation has to get resolved. So, you know, now let's talk a little Star Wars, right? Because we're about to head into the second weekend for Solo, A Star Wars Story. And, you know, right now, it's kind of insane what's going on in terms of uh, what the box office prognosticators seem to think might be happening here with the Ron Howard film. So, earlier today, I published a story on Revenge of the Fans that pointed out that the Hollywood Reporter seems to have gone crazy bananas with their box office projection for Solo this second weekend. I mean, literally, crazy bananas, okay? Because last weekend it made 84.4 million dollars over the 3-day weekend and 103 million over the 4-day. Uh, this weekend uh, THR says that the film could make around 60 million dollars and if it dips greatly then maybe 50. Are you kidding me? I mean that's insane. That's in that that has to be one of the most optimistic readings I've ever heard. I'm not I'm not a math whiz. But if we're going to compare the you know last week's three day to this week's three day, that means that they're saying that in weekend one it made eighty four point four and this weekend it could make sixty. Like what percentage even is that in terms of like a drop off? That's I, I need a math whiz to tell me what that is. But I know it's like what like thirty percent off the mark. That to me that sounds crazy bananas absurd unbelievable unrealistic you know, what sounds far more realistic and kind of depressing are what places like Deadline and other sources are saying, like Box Office Pro. They claim the film's going to make more like maybe somewhere between the uh, either the high 20s or possibly as high as 40 million. So now, listen, my math is a little better. If it pulls in 40, then that's a little more than a fifty percent drop, right? Because forty is roughly half of eighty-four million. So you can see, I, I know some basic math, but you know that sounds a lot more likely. But now let's talk about what you know why that would be somewhat depressing, and and you know what's up there because Solo is one of those movies that listen. Not a lot of people showed up on opening weekend, but the people who did, by and large, were happy with what they saw. You know, they gave the film a cinema score of A-, and we've seen, you know, cinema scores like that give movies some surprisingly decent legs. You know, what's a movie that everyone keeps talking about right now, you know, trying to compare Solo to because of the whole director drama and the fact that it was a follow-up to a polarizing movie and yada, yada, yada. Everyone wants to bring up Justice League, right? Well, Justice League, you know, for all of the hate around that movie and all of the drama and all of the needlessly negative energy uh its second weekend was pretty decent you know it was it only dipped 56% and it has it it had a cinema score of b plus so presumably with a cinema score of a minus and a a weekend that that has extremely little in terms of competition i mean it's a bunch of movies most of you probably have barely heard of, and the only one that's at all on my radar is Action Point, but that's because specifically I'm a huge fan of the Jackass movies. They're a total guilty pleasure of mine. So the idea of seeing Johnny Knoxville and Chris Pontius make asses of themselves and do stupid stunts, hey, that, that'll that always get me in a seat. Now, I will always, you'll always get my money if that's what you promise me. But aside from that, the other movies opening this weekend are all, you know, low ball fare and, and that, that's not a judgment on them you that know, some of them have, had, have good reviews like a drift but right now you know the the landscape for this weekend is pretty good. You know, it's pretty good for Solo because at this point Avengers Infinity War is going to be in its sixth weekend and it seems to be winding down a bit. Deadpool had a pretty big drop after its first weekend, so it's probably going to have another decent drop this time around. And now, you know, Solo is going to have the benefit of having a week presumably of positive word of mouth to try to push it to do some some interesting numbers. So, I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on this because I, for one, am baffled by this wide array of numbers I'm seeing. To have THR, a trusted industry outlet, claim that it could make 50 to 60 million dollars, and while everyone else is saying it's more like 28 to 40, you know, I, I can't wait to see who's right and who's wrong. And personally, having seen the film, reviewed the film, liked it much more than I thought I would, even despite all of my reservations, I'm pulling for this movie. I am, because A, at the end of the day, no matter what, no matter how disappointed I was with The Last Jedi, no matter how questionable I found the mere concept for this solo film, I enjoyed the movie, and I I will always root for Star Wars to do well, because I just love this world so much. And unlike others, I don't think Disney is ruining it and defiling it and doing this huge disservice to the world that George Lucas handed them. I really don't. I really think that they're onto something. They just need to figure out what direction they want to go in. Do they want to keep mining stories that build at or around the original trilogy? Do they want to break into fully new ground? You know, they they need to get that aspect of things sorted out and figure out, pick a direction and go in it or kind of make like separate branding so that we know like, okay, this is going to be something that's very forward facing, which is like what I assume that the Ryan Johnson trilogy is going to be like you know here's you know here's nothing you're familiar with here's nothing but brand new characters on an all new arc that has nothing to do with what's come before it and then maybe the the Wenioff, the, the Benioff and Vice movies will be continuations of what we've seen or whatever you know they, they they need to find a way to maybe come up with alternate branding or an alternate way to present these films because there's no reason to go either or. You can definitely straddle the line in terms of a franchise. You can still make movies that on one hand appeal to the older base while you have new ones that appeal to a newer base as you're expanding the scope and breadth of the franchise. But they have to decide what they're going to do. You know, Because right now, like this solo thing was a misstep. For better or worse, I enjoyed the movie, but this was not a movie that people were dying to see that anyone really wanted, that anyone was really asking for. And now, of course, the big question is Kathleen Kennedy. What does this mean for Kathleen Kennedy and the current state of Lucasfilm and how they do things? Well, when it comes to all that, I got to say, hold your horses. You're being incredibly unrealistic and you're not paying attention to what's going on in a little place I call real life. Okay? Listen, I know a bunch of you may have grudges against Kathleen Kennedy because you feel like The Last Jedi slaughtered your childhood and you have all of these pent-up emotions, but if you can move your emotions outside for a second, go go, go send them to play in the yard because I need to talk to your brain for a few seconds here, okay? Because the first three Star Wars movies under Kathleen Kennedy, we're talking Star Wars The Force Awakens, Rogue One, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. Those three movies made $4.4 billion. They got a very good critical response. The cinema scores were all high. So that meant that, you know, by and large audiences embrace it. And I know that's hard to hear, right? Even for me, it's hard for me to have to say that because I didn't love The Last Jedi. And a part of me wants to go and throttle people who tell me what an amazing instant classic it is and meanwhile, I look at that movie and I go, wow, Ryan Johnson really sort of phoned this in. And I'm sure that pisses off some of you, all right? I'm sorry, Aaron. I'm sorry, Chris. By the way, Aaron and Chris, uh, longtime listeners and supporters and and sometimes contributors to Revenge of the Fans, they have launched their own new podcast called The Fanboy Garage, which is part of the Revenge of the Fans podcast network. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I strongly suggest you do. This past week, they released their third episode, which was totally all Star Wars, all the time. And next week, they're going to go head-to-head on Solo, A Star Wars Story, because Aaron, being the typical Star Wars fanboy he is, sorry Aaron, he loved it, like me. And Chris Lasanti, his co-host, did not care for it one bit, and he found it sort of derivative and uninspired, and the two of them are going to go head-to-head, one-on-one, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, forehead-to-forehead about this movie. So don't miss that. That's going to be on episode four, but either way, I'd like to just formally welcome here on the show the Fanboy Garage to the Revenge of the Fans podcast network. Definitely check them out. But one area where the two of them do agree is that The Last Jedi is this beautiful, classic, incredible Star Wars movie, and I could not disagree more. But with that said, I cannot allow my own personal emotions, my own personal bias about Last Jedi, hinder the fact that it was a success, by any realistic measure, it was a success. Was it as big a success as Star Wars The Force Awakens? No, absolutely not. But this thing made $1.3 billion. If memory serves, it had a cinema score of around, I think it was like an A-, minus, which that's a very good cinema score, and... Over on, you know, in terms of, like, the critical aggregators, it was in the positives. I think it was, like, in the 80 percentages on on Rotten Tomatoes. So critics liked it. Audiences, for the most part, liked it. It made a ton of money. So now all that really means is that Solo is the first misfire for Kathleen Kennedy. As hard as that may be for Last Jedi detractors to hear, Solo is really the first mistake she's made. But now here's I you know here is like the cautionary part of this and the part that's still sort of up in the air. If episode nine comes out and that one also misfires, now we start to worry about Kathleen Kennedy. Right now we don't worry at all. If episode nine misfires, then we do because that would mean that the last Jedi's detractors are actually. It is a larger part of the base than anyone wants to realize. And that's where the people like myself, who didn't care for it, can sort of beat their chest and say, see, we told you this movie wasn't that good. But again, we're not going to know that for another year and a half. You know, J.J. Abrams, episode nine does not come out until December of 2019. So we have a whole year and a half and then some to figure out what's going to happen with Kathleen Kennedy and the Star Wars universe. Right now, I don't think anyone could look at Solo and go, that's it, you got to get fired. You know, all that really happened with Solo, because remember, the movie turned out pretty damn good, considering all the -the behind-the-scenes struggles and, and them sort of, you know, them firing Lord and Miller two weeks before principal photography wrapped. Solo turned out to be a pretty damn good movie, and the audiences liked it. It wasn't, it didn't make a ton at the box office, but I think that has more to do with the original sin of Solo, a Star Wars story. The original sin is that the movie exists at all. It's not a concept that would be easy to sell, that people are open to selling. And in fact, Thomas Kelly, who writes for the site, he wrote a fantastic piece that I put up earlier this week, uh, just called Solo, a Star Wars misfire. I strongly recommend it. It's it, he, you know, he <clears throat> similar to me, he enjoyed the movie. But it's once again breaking down how Lucasfilm seems to have mistaken what the audience wants. That there's certain things about this movie that just from a fundamental level always meant it was going to have an uphill battle ahead of it in terms of winning over pop culture, winning over casual audiences, and appealing to anyone beyond the hardest of the hardcore fan base. So solo right now we cannot read too much into it in terms of what this means for Kathleen Kennedy for Lucasfilm and for Star Wars but episode 9 is going to be the true barometer because what that means is that last jedi and and the the creative license that she allowed Ryan Johnson to have for the tone and the thing the choices that he made for that movie that means that it really did poison the well. Because you don't go from The Force Awakens in Episode 7 making 2.2 billion to then dropping down to 1.3. And then in this hypothetical scenario, if Episode 9 can't even hit a billion, now this means that that middle movie, that Episode 8, was a big dud. And it, it did your entire franchise a huge disservice. And that's where, A, a few things will happen. Kathleen Kennedy, will no longer be in charge because she's the one it was under her watch that she allowed Ryan Johnson to make the decisions he made that ultimately in this scenario hobbled Star Wars. And the other thing that will go the way of the dodo immediately is Ryan Johnson's trilogy for obvious reasons. So, honestly, no one everyone is jumping to conclusions about what Solo's sort of underperformance at the box office means. You're reading too much into that right now. The real story, the real teller of what's going to happen here is episode nine. And we have a whole year and a half to wait to see how that plays out. And, you know, while we're talking Star Wars and as I head towards the finale of this here episode, I also want to just drop a plug for this week's The Revengers podcast that I recorded this past Monday with Brett and Vanessa. I strongly recommend you listen to that because I go into great detail in both non spoiler and then spoiler capacity on what I thought of solo a Star Wars story. And so do Brett and Vanessa, and they have some interesting takes on things. And uh, it was a really fun episode to record. It was pretty much all Star Wars all the time. So really, if you're into podcasts and you're into Star Wars, Revenge of the Fans has given you a couple of very big things to check out this week. You know, on, on Tuesday, we gave you... Uh, episode 16 of the Revengers podcast, and then on Thursday, yesterday, we gave you the fanboy garage, and both of them were related to Star Wars, so you've got a lot of listening to do this weekend. I strongly suggest you check out, uh, you know, the the great d- discussion I had with Brett and Vanessa about Solo. Uh, this week's recommendation, you know, I've been thinking about uh, the summer a lot and wanting to get away and get on the beach And I've been wanting to laugh a lot lately because sometimes that can be hard to do. And so uh, my recommendation this week is Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It's a a romantic comedy, but it's mainly a comedy first and foremost, starring the criminally underrated and who should be much more famous, Jason Segel from uh, How I Met Your Mother as well as Mila Kunis and Kristen Bell, with a couple of of great appearances from Jonah Hill and Russell Brand. That's the movie that sort of put Russell Brand on the mainstream uh, kick there for a while, which I guess is maybe a good and or a bad thing. But yes, Forgetting Sarah Marshall is currently, I believe, on Netflix, and, uh, that is my recommendation for this week. If you want a good laugh and you want to think about great weather and getting out to the beach and seeing and exploring beautiful things. And, you know, it has some bittersweet elements too, because it deals with a breakup and a guy just trying to like find himself after having his life upended and kind of living his life as sort of a overgrown man child, which, you know, uh, I think some of us can be sometimes including me. But, um, (laughs) he says as he looks over at his Christopher Reeve action figure in his bedroom. But anyway, um, that is it for episode 62 of the El Fanboy podcast. Thanks for listening. Life is chaos. Be kind. And until next week, adios.